0: I'm Alexander your host on The Open Mind. Back with us is constitutional scholar, Steve Laddick. He is a professor at the University of Texas School of Law. Thank you so much for joining me again, Steve.
1: Anytime. Thanks for having me.
0: Steve, what do you make of the fact that the chief justice has declined to preside over this trial and the extent to which it may delegitimize it?
1: You know, I really think it's a, it's a mountain out of a molehill. I mean, if we accept the premise that the president's no longer the president, that Trump isn't the president and hasn't been since January 20th. You know, the text of the constitution requires the chief justice to preside only when the president is being tried, not a president. Um, And, you know, that's for an obvious reason. If the president were being tried, the person who would otherwise preside over the Senate, the vice president has a rather large conflict of interest. um, And that's clearly not true here. So, you know, I don't think the chief had to preside over this. And I think not presiding is probably the right thing to do. The folks who are making a lot out of it would have, you know, would have and will continue to find any, I think, procedural off ramp um, to try to defend Trump here because it allows them to neither condemn his behavior nor condone it. But I just think, you know, as a legal argument, it's not especially convincing.
0: And what about the, the his own calculus in terms of the seriousness of the offenses um, and the fact that, you know, we've seen impeachment before. We haven't seen the cause be insurrection or crimes against the U.S. government, literally another branch of government, uh, you can't help but think that that his opting out of it, on its face, for those who were not concerned with the precedent, um, is is uh, is just disconcerting. Given again, given the the elevated nature of the crimes.
1: Um, I mean I, I guess I guess I go I go back to where I started, which I, I'm not sure that the the nature of the crimes ought to have factored into the chief's decision. I mean, I think, you know, his his decision ought to be how do I, you know, what what is best for the courts as an institution? And, you know, so going out of his way to participate in a proceeding that he doesn't have to participate in, I, I think it's not hard to understand why he would have thought that was not the best move. Um, You know, the the partisans are going to make out of it whatever they want to. And so I I guess that I just I don't think this is nearly the, you know, the sort of the diss of the process that I think the the president's supporters are trying to make it out to be. I think this is more consistent with, you know, John Roberts traditionally just trying to stay out of the things he wants to stay out of. Trial. uh,
0: Now that we have. Uh, move past the procedural vote. Um, What changes your calculus based on the fact that only five Republicans voted to proceed and every single other Republican essentially agreed with Rand Paul's uh, argument that it was an unconstitutional procedure, Um, knowing that and the fact that only five Republicans were, prepared to move forward with it, did that at all change your sense of how this trial should move forward?
1: I don't think so because, I mean, I think the, you know, the I think it was always a bit of a long shot that Trump would be convicted. Um, And to me, a large and significant reason to go through with this whole process anyway is to build a record, is to require, you know, the Senate of the United States to put on record the allegations against Trump, the evidence that's being mounted by, you know, the House impeachment managers, the video documentation that we've seen emerge, you know, in the last few days. And, and so I, I think there is a there is an enormous value to really running the traps here and to building the case, even if, you know, the Republican senators have already tipped their hand that they're going to duck um, on this, you know, frankly, unsatisfying and unconvincing legal objection. Uh, Because there's still the historical role here. There's still the historical significance of the proceeding and the extent to which when we look back two, three, four years from now on, you know, the events of January 6th, you know, maybe we'll be able to point to the Senate trial as pretty powerful evidence of just how morally culpable Donald Trump was, even if he manages to avoid legal culpability for it.
0: Now, now there is the question of conviction, expulsion, and disqualification. So, there has been a question as to why we're moving forward with impeachment rather than censure or disqualification under the 14th Amendment when, like you're saying, it is rather improbable that there's going to be a conviction. Uh, But, is your understanding? That even if there is not a conviction, there can be a separate vote. Uh, It won't be under the impeachment clause of the Constitution, but under the Fourteenth Amendment. So that even if there is not a conviction, there could still be a vote with a simple majority to disqualify Trump from serving in future office.
1: I, I mean, I think you know Congress can certainly attempt that. I mean, the problem is is that Congress has never done that before, and so you know Congress can pass. A concurrent resolution that gets through both houses, where Congress says, we we conclude that Trump is disqualified, that won't do anything until and unless, you know, we get to the 2024 cycle, and he's, you know, trying to register to run in certain states, and states either block him and he sues, or they don't block him and, you know, his opponents sue. And I just, you know, I, I guess I just think that, like, I, I don't have a ton of faith that you know, something Congress has never done before is going to necessarily hold up in court three years from now. That's why I think it's still worth, you know, going through the the process that we know the Constitution contemplates, the process that we know has teeth, where, you know, if the president, if Trump actually is convicted by the Senate, if the Senate then subsequently goes to disqualify him, you know, we know what that means. There won't be a question about that in 2024 versus, you know, trying the, the never before used, at least as against a president, provisions of the 14th Amendment.
0: You're basically making the argument that under the 14th Amendment, if there were a simple majority 5150 vote, that that could be overturned by the Supreme Court if states uh, attempt to disqualify Trump if he were run again in 2024. Whereas if he was convicted and disqualified under the impeachment clause, uh, that would hold up uh, with all certainty in the in the United States Supreme Court.
1: Well, I mean, I, I I think the Supreme Court would just never touch it. I mean, there's a you know there's a 1993 decision by the Supreme Court in a case unhelpfully called Nixon versus the United States. It was a different Nixon. It was uh, federal Judge Walter Nixon, where Chief Justice Redquist says it's not the court's job to review the propriety of impeachments. Um, and so I, I I think there's a very good argument that the courts would just stay out if there were a lawsuit trying to contest. Um, whether you know, the effect of Trump's conviction and disqualification, if that's where the Senate trial ends up, I, I think there's no question that the courts would feel bound to intervene if instead we get you know, Congress purporting to disqualify him simply by a, a bare majority vote of both chambers um, under the 14th Amendment. Tactically, from a constitutional argument, there
0: is a way to pull in people who would vote nay on conviction, similarly arguing on procedural grounds this was a fraudulent or illegitimate impeachment or trial. Is there a way to re-engage people who voted to basically say this is not a legitimate procedure?
1: Um maybe. I mean, you know, no one no one is bound by that vote. In the sense that, like, I, you know, nothing would stop a senator who voted, you know, to in favor of the jurisdictional objection and coming back and saying, I've changed my mind. Um, and so, you know, I think it is possible that, especially if new information comes out between now and the trial, that just further inculpates Trump um, or that further drives home his, you know, his insuitability to ever be trusted with a federal office again, you know, I, I, I don't think that that's, that, that, that the, the 55-45 vote is necessarily conclusive of what the final, you know, vote will be on conviction. But, but I do think it is a pretty powerful sign that the Republican, that, that most Republican senators um, have bought into the idea of moving on, right, have bought into this whole, let's just, you know, put this behind us, when we still don't even know what the is is that we're putting behind us. And, and I think the the real question to me is you know is the trial going to be able to make it harder for those senators to you know try to try to brush this under the rug um, is the trial actually going to make it that much clearer that there was a coordinated effort on the part of the campaign and perhaps even the administration if not to facilitate and certainly not to obstruct the violence on January sixth and I think that's that's the challenge that the impeachment manager's face
0: you think that a a series of testimonies uh, can be compelling, or is most compelling. Apparently, there the suggestion is to use video and audio footage um, demonstrating how Trump's words translated into the insurrection and murders. Um, you know, w- would you put people on the stand as most effective? or do you think you would let maybe some of the video and audio trail speak for
1: itself? I I mean, I I think the video and audio trail is is pretty comprehensive here. I mean, I think the only question is whether, you know, there are witnesses who can and will testify to things that are not captured, that are not reflected in the video and audio trail, you know, were there behind the scenes conversations that weren't recorded to which there are folks who will testify? Were there, you know, directives conveyed from the White House to the relevant federal agencies, um, you know, that were not memorialized? I mean, I think that's that's the only question for me. and And, and you know, my hope is that the House managers are thinking through this pretty carefully as they're deciding what the contours of the case is going to look like.
0: What about the funding of the event itself? Uh, There has been reporting on Trump and Trump campaign and uh, secret political action committees involvement in convening the event that organized and bus people to the Capitol and precipitated the violent insurrection. Uh, That's something that might be useful, or do you think that um, that would get too complicated?
1: Um i, I you know, I think it really I, I think it could be useful if you know in as part of a larger story where you know the where where Trump can't just say things got out of hand, where it actually you know where there's a much more sort of comprehensive story about how this was always the plan, um and Trump did nothing to. You know, stop it, and indeed, in some ways encouraged it. But I don't know. I mean I, i'm I find that less interesting and less relevant than the particular um, links between the campaign and the idea of actually trying to disrupt the joint session that that to me, that is a really, really big part of of the case here, that that the goal was not just to have a really loud, vocal, visible exercise of First Amendment rights out in front of the Capitol, but the goal was actually to prevent Congress from exercising its constitutional duty. Do you think that
0: had the procedure been in place sooner, even though this was still a historic impeachment in that it happened relatively quickly, the temperature... Um, has dissipated, and there really seemed to be a captive public and literally a captive uh, Republican Party that was, um, you know, in in effect being loosened from the chains of Trumpism. And there was nothing procedurally that prevented the United States Congress from both impeaching and convicting Trump sooner, but McConnell held out. Um, and did not want to take it up uh, until the new Congress, which is led by Schumer now, um, would would have uh, this this delay uh, certainly in 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 the public minds, but also in the minds of these legislators who are now experiencing some distance from the actual events. Uh, that that has to have uh, you know a, a psychological factor that really might contribute to uh, votes and, and the fact that votes that might have been for conviction weeks ago are now safely against it
1: I, I think that's right and I think that was probably part of McConnell's plan um, but you know I mean it's worth stressing here that, that that it's not the delay by itself it's the delay combined with the end of Trump's administration where you know two different things are now true that weren't true. You know, ten days ago. Um, one, you know, even for those Republicans who would quietly tell you that he really is a clear and present danger, he isn't anymore, um, right? That you know, that he no longer has his finger on the nuclear launch codes. Um, but, but two, you know, the the sort of the the question of Republicans after Trump. Um, to me it was a lot harder when Trump was still in charge, as opposed to, you know, the ease with which the different factions of the Republican Party can now um, come together in opposition to the Democrats. That, you know, the the one thing Republicans have always been able to, to, to put aside their differences for is opposing anything Democrats are doing. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think it was inevitable that this would happen as soon as the administration shifted. That was probably McConnell's plan all along. I think that only underscores, though, why it's so important to keep going. Because, you know, otherwise we set this terrible precedent that presidents who engage in grossly inappropriate and, to my mind, clearly impeachable behavior, while they're lame ducks, you know, can just run off the clock on consequences. That that hasn't been the law and it shouldn't be the law.
0: I think part of the question, too, might be how prepared his Trump to stay out of the limelight. Um, You know, he infamously said if he lost the election, which he never admitted to, he did lose the election that uh, he may never heard, be heard from again, if he was lost. And um, the, if, if Trump were to reappear in some way um, that might start to tip the scales against him, if he stays quiet while this all plays out that might be in his favor.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think in that respect, it's actually ironically helpful to him that he has been suspended from almost every major social media platform because it has, you know, it, it has increased his silence um, in a context in which I think it's reasonable to suspect that if Trump were actively tweeting or actively on Facebook at this moment, he would not be helping his case. Um and so I think, you know, I think there are probably a number of Republicans who are just hoping that he goes away um, and, you know, sort of trying to keep their heads down, looking for procedural off-ramps to avoid alienating their base one way or the other in the outcome of trial, and then just really hoping that, like, you know, the even if Trumpism isn't going away, that Trump himself just fades into obscurity, Um and, and I think the, the question is, how likely a bet is that? How realistic is that? You know, Trump will be 78, um, you know, in the time of the 2024 Republican primary season. Um, is he really going to throw his hat back into the ring? And if so, you know, what lessons are we going to have learned from this time around?
0: Shifting gears to the United States Supreme Court, the commission that President Biden pledged to establish is on its way to being formed. And I believe it's going to make recommendations about the future of the Supreme Court in 180 days. Uh, what do you expect that that commission will recommend?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think some of it's going to depend on on who's on the commission, and I think some of it's going to depend on what their mandate is. I, you know, I think there's it's it, there's a widespread, I think, inaccurate view um, that the commission was just then-candidate and now President Biden's way of punting the much messier question of whether Democrats should try to add seats to the Supreme Court, when in fact, you know, I think there are so many other areas in which we ought to be having serious conversations about court reform that don't include expanding the size of the Supreme Court. So, you know, the with the, with regard to the Supreme Court itself, talking about, you know, what the court's docket looks like, which cases it's hearing, how quickly or slowly it's hearing them, um, the rise of the shadow docket, where the court has been deciding more and more and increasingly contentious disputes in these summary, often indecipherable orders. Um, with regard to lower courts, I think there's, you know, a lot less opposition to um, adding seats to some of the lower courts. So, you know, I, I hope the commission, re- I hope and expect that the commission will actually be looking at a heck of a lot of stuff well beyond the headline grabbing. You know, should we add seats to the Supreme Court? Question. Because it seems to be that um, there's a meaningful opportunity for reforms, especially if the reforms are packaged as a lesser and more politically palatable alternative to the extreme medicine of expanding the court.
0: What would be in a report
1: that could help catapult it,
0: you know, to gain some momentum?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, I think, frankly, a lot of technical stuff that is not going to generate headlines, but that would go a long way toward meaningfully improving how the courts function and, you know, individual Americans access to the courts. I mean, I think there's a lot of very technical stuff that could go a long way toward making it easier for us to enforce constitutional rights, Um, technical stuff that would make it um, harder for courts to avoid um, cases that are, you know, pretty important and raise important merits questions that the courts might otherwise be inclined to duck Um, You know, some of the disputes we had over the last few years over congressional subpoenas, like making it harder for the courts to run out the clock on those, um, requiring the Supreme Court to take up more capital cases on direct appeal so they don't all just come down to these 11th hour, you know, stays of execution. I mean, I just I think the way this commission, I hope, you know, finds a way to gain bipartisan consensus and credibility for its recommendations sufficient to actually give the bill a chance of getting through Congress. Um, is by, you know, taking a serious look at improving access to justice as a, you know, nationwide issue and sort of don't just, you know, don't just view it as a way of exacting democratic partisan revenge against Republicans, but rather as a way of just making the courts much more fair and just for for everybody um, in ways I think in the last 30, 40 years, the courts have gotten away from.
0: And when it does come to those big-ticket items, uh, expanding the core term limits um, – Senator Schumer's has already expressed interest in expanding the federal bench, citing backlogs in Buffalo uh, – that can be accomplished um, without a um, filibuster-proof supermajority. But in terms of any kind of reforms that uh, would be those big-ticket items that could get traction – If you were approaching it from that point of view, what do you think would, you know, would would be something that's not dead on arrival? Uh, Expanding courts, um, you know, specific allotments of justices for each presidency, uh, term limits or restrictions. I mean, if there was one element of Supreme Court reform
1: that isn't dead on arrival, what do you think that would be? Um. I mean, I think i mean I, I think there are a lot of Supreme Court reforms that would not be done on arrival. Again, I think it's the more technical ones, right? So expanding the court's jurisdiction um requiring it actually to take more cases um right um, you know re- uh, requiring it to move faster on certain kinds of cases. like those kinds of Supreme Court reforms, I think are not dead on arrival. The two big ones, right, adding seats and capping terms I, I think those are both real uphill battles. Um, with regard to cap terms, I mean that one's you know there's a constitutional debate, right, about whether Congress even can do that by statute. Although I fall on the side of thinking that the answer is yes. Um, so you know I, I guess it's it's the real question is like are are either of those reforms, um, things for which Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema or the other you know sort of super moderate Democratic senators would actually be willing to blow up the filibuster for and. I don't think that we're there yet. I mean, I think that's where the commission really would have, you know, the the commission's task is going to be not just convincing everybody about the imperative for these reforms, but if they really do go that far, you know, convincing the senators who are most likely to not go along with blowing up the filibuster, that it's worth doing it for that. And that's where I think, you know, it's that's where I think it's unlikely. That's where I think the real power of the commission could be in saying, listen, we're not going to go there. Which is what you know because we want to get the rest of this through. There is
0: there's been reporting over many years that the nine justices, as long as there have been nine, are extremely hostile to any reform, and uh, and and I think that that hostility um, is along with um, the Republican Party's. Um, position at the moment that there should never be more than nine justices what makes it so untouchable but i just wanted you to reflect as we close on the hostility of the
1: current members towards any reform or expansion um i mean i think it's worth stressing that the only the only one of the nine current justices who has publicly expressed that hostility is justice alito um and and i think and so i i think it's you know that it's it's I, I'm not sure it's quite as as comprehensive as 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 it might seem. Um, but you know, the reality is that, of course, the the Supreme Court at any moment in its history is going to be the institution most averse to its own reform. I mean, that was true of FDR's court packing plan in 1937, where you know even some of the most progressive justices on the court. Um, you know, Cardozo, um, right, was 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 one of the strongest critics of it. So I, I just I, I think the the question is not about whether the Supreme Court agrees that it's time for it to be reformed. I think that only underscores the you know that only underscores the problem, which is the notion that it ought to be up to them, <laughs> right? That insofar as Congress has not complete but broad power to regulate the federal courts you know, Congress doesn't require the federal court's permission to exercise that power. Um, and so I think what we go back to is, you know, let's identify areas where there really is consensus that there's needs for reform, um, reforms that do not have obvious partisan valences, but actually that are relevant across administrations, because I think there are many. Um, and if, you know, if if the existing federal bench is not wild about those reforms, so be it. I mean, that's, you know, the, they don't have to be.
0: Steve Vladek, Constitutional Scholar at the University of Texas, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Of course, thank you.